pray that you'd speak to us in and through and around your word. Do it by the presence of your spirit and come and speak to our open, prepared hearts right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 3, beginning now at verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. We last left Moses from Exodus chapter 2 when he had killed an Egyptian and fled for his life because the people of Israel were not ready to accept Moses as their deliverer. And he was afraid that his crime would be discovered. And he just realized that everything was just sort of off track from the way that at least he had planned it and anticipated it for his own life. So Moses fled to a very distant part of the desert. And now between chapters 2 and 3, some 40 years went by. You see, the first 40 years of Moses' life, he lived in a privileged place as being a prince of Egypt. And at least according to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, being heir to the throne of Egypt. But all of that blew up in his face when he murdered the Egyptian. The Israelites refused to recognize him as the deliverer, and he had to flee into the distant land of Midian. Well, after 40 years of tending his father-in-law Jethro's sheep in the land of Midian, now we come to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, where he's tending the flock again of his father-in-law. Notice, he doesn't even have his own flock of sheep. He's sending his father-in-law's flock of sheep out in the distant wilderness of Midian. But then something very unusual and very important happened at that time, at that place, out near a place called Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. There at Mount Sinai, this happened starting at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Now Moses had been walking that desert and living amongst that environment with those sheep for 40 years. He was an old man, but he was obviously in good shape, enough to be doing this physical work of a shepherd. Maybe those first 40 years of privilege just lasted and built into him to a strength that lasted through the 40 years of just sort of a more simple and rough existence in the desert. But day in, day out would go by and he'd be out there with the sheep and he'd see a lot of things happen. I'm sure he would see, which they say sometimes happens in that part of the desert, the, these thorny bushes, these bushes just sort of almost spontaneously combust. I think he had seen it before where a lightning strike comes and lights something on fire in the desert. But this was so unusual, so different, that it drew his attention. And it was unusual for at least two reasons. Verse 2 tells us why. First of all, it was unusual because the angel of the Lord appeared from the midst of the bush. Well, that doesn't happen every day, does it? But secondly, and also remarkably, verse 2 tells us that the bush was burning but it was not consumed. Now, what an unusual sight that would be. What would be normally a dry, crackly bush, something like a tumbleweed almost, or at least you can picture it that way in your mind. How long does it take for a tumbleweed to burn up? Just a few moments. It can burn very brightly and with a big flame, but very quickly it's consumed. Not the case with this burning bush. It burned and burned and burned, and it was not consumed. 
Now, some people search for some symbolism in this burning bush. Some people say that the burning bush was a symbol of the nation of Israel, that there they were in the midst of the fiery affliction of their servitude and slavery in Egypt for many generations. And despite that fiery trial, they were not consumed. I'll say, well, maybe, maybe that's the idea behind the burning bush. But I like this one better. The ancient Hebrew has the idea that it was a particular kind of bush, that it was a thorn bush. And I think of the thorn of how it represents the curse of God. You know that from the book of Genesis, where part of the curse that was put upon Adam after the fall had to do with thorns. And I think of a fire coming upon a place of thorns, yet not consuming, burning, but not consuming. And I'll tell you exactly what comes to my mind comes to my mind what Jesus did for us on the cross, because did not a man with a crown of thorns hang on a cross and take the fire of God's judgment and did it not burn upon him, yet he was not consumed? Isn't that fascinating? There, Jesus, the only one who could take the judgment on our behalf, who could take that fire upon him, yet he was not consumed by that fire, but rather he endured it not only upon himself, but on our behalf as our substitute for sin on the cross. I hope I'm not making too much of this, but you could not, uh, I could be accused of a little bit of exaggeration, but not too much, when you could say that it was the cross that attracted Moses. That there, this burning bush, almost a symbol of the cross, drawing him there, and he says, I've got to look at this. I've got to come in for a closer examination. But what happens? As Moses approaches the burning bush for a closer examination, verse 4, So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. What began as merely an unusual sight, and certainly it was unusual to see a bush burning yet not consumed, what began as just an unusual sight, as Moses draws near, he notices something. First of all, or I should say, God noticed him. Did you see that at verse 4? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, then God spoke to him. The whole point of it was just to get Moses' attention so that God could speak to him. The message wasn't the burning bush in itself. The burning bush was just an attraction so that Moses would listen to the word of God. And as soon as Moses turned aside to look, then God says, good, now I'm going to speak to you and give you my word. By the way, and I'll just say this very quickly because we've got a lot to get to in this chapter. But isn't it interesting? Sometimes God will do very dramatic things to get our attention so that we'll listen to his words. Do you understand that phenomenon in your own life? That God does something. Maybe it's something very good. Maybe it's something that seems bad. But something will happen in your life. And it's as if God is saying, okay, now that I have your attention, I can speak to you. Maybe that's some of you here this morning. Maybe that's why you're here. Because in some way, the circumstances of the recent past have, well, God's got your attention. Good. Now listen to his word and what God may speak to you here this morning. Verse 4, God called to him from the midst of the bush. You see, Moses didn't see anyone in the burning bush, but in the presence of the angel of the Lord, as described in verse 2, 
There was someone there calling out to Moses from the midst of the burning bush. And the first words he said to Moses are there listed in verse 4, where he said, Moses, Moses. I love that. God's first words to Moses were to call him by name. I know you. Moses, I know you. You're the one who was drawn out of the Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter. You're the one whose godly mother and father put him in a little boat on the river. You're the one who grew up in the palaces of Egypt. You're the one who killed the Egyptian. You're the one who was rejected as being deliverer by your own countrymen. You're the one who escaped him. Yeah, Moses, I'm talking to you. And if God could put any more emphasis on it, he says, Moses, Moses. I think that's fascinating because there's a few times in the scriptures where God does that. How about this? Abraham, Abraham, Samuel, Samuel, Simon, Simon, Martha, Martha, Saul, Saul. I wonder if God isn't saying your name twice right now, speaking to you. Oh, and you think it might be a word of condemnation or conviction. Maybe it's just a word of love and calling to you just as much as it was for Moses right at this place. But make no mistake. Look at it here in verse 5. God said something very dramatic to Moses. God told Moses to do two things to show special honor to this place because of the immediate presence of God. The first thing he told Moses was, stop, don't come any closer. Moses was walking towards the burning bush to, to get a closer look, to see what is this thing I have to investigate. Moses was an intelligent man with a curious mind. I've got to see what's going on. But God said, stop, don't come any closer. Now notice this. God's saying, Moses, there is distance, there is separation between you and I. There is a separation between us. Don't come any closer. Secondly, God told Moses, take your sandals off your feet. Now, that showed appropriate humility. I heard of a pastor preaching on this section, and he actually told the people in his congregation to all take their shoes off. I don't think we have adequate ventilation in the room to do that at the present time. Maybe if this were an outdoor service, we could, but you get the idea. But taking the shoes or the sandals off the feet expressed humility for a few reasons. First of all, because the poorest and most needy people have no shoes. Also, servants in that day and age normally went barefoot, but it also recognized the immediate presence of God. And what I mean by that is this, is that in those cultures and in many cultures in the world today, when you go into somebody's house, the first thing you do is you take off your shoes. It's as if God was saying to Moses, you're in my house right now. I know you're on a mountainside. I know you're here on the slopes of Mount Sinai in front of a burning bush, but this place is sacred. This is my house Take off your shoes. You're in my immediate presence. Now, how did all this make Moses feel? Did Moses have this feeling of, oh, this is so warm and fuzzy. I just want to bask in the radiant. No, look at it, verse 6. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Moses did what was appropriate for any creature to do in the presence of their creator. And that was simply to hide their face. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible tells us that even the glorious cherubim that surround the throne of God, who do nothing but worship him day and night, and are beings of almost unspeakable purity and honor and power and glory, uh, some high order among the created beings in this universe, what do those cherubim do that surround the throne of God? They cover their face with wings. 
And so Moses covered his face. You see him lifting up his arm, covering his face because he was afraid to look upon God. He knew that he was a creature, even a sinful creature, before the holy presence of God. Now, I want you to notice something. What God has done in this experience up to this point is sort of establish a separation between himself and Moses. Moses, I'm God and you're not. Moses, I can dwell in the midst of a burning bush and you can't. Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're not. Moses, there's a separation. I'm pure. You're unpure. You hide your face from me. I don't hide my face from you. You see, God has established that there is a separation between God and man. And I'll just quickly remind you, that's a good thing for each of us to keep in mind. I've got news for some of you. Many of you already know this, but just in case there's somebody who's uninformed here this morning, I'll say it very bluntly. You're not God. You're not God. There is a God who dwells in heaven, enthroned on a heavenly throne, and he manages and he looks over all the affairs of this world, and you're not him. Now, please keep that in mind. There is a separation between who we are and God. And I'll go further to say this, that not only are you not God, and I'm not God, certainly, but God is more than just a superman. God isn't just the ultimate man or the highest form of man, but there is a separation between humanity and deity that God wanted Moses to respect. But now look at this in verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians." And to bring them up from that land into a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, for I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, please notice this. Verse 7, after establishing the separation between humanity and deity, now God establishes the sympathy that deity has for humanity. He says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry. God wanted Moses and Israel to know that he had a heart full of compassion and care for them. Ladies and gentlemen, God is separate, but he's not distant. God is separate, yet he cares and he connects himself to our needs. Therefore, after establishing the separation, now God speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, I love my people Israel. I care for them. And verse 10, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people. Now, I want you to notice something. Look back at verse 8. By the way, I hope you've got a Bible in front of you that you can look back to. I mean, the the, the verses that we splash up on the screen for emphasis, that's not following the text verse by verse. We want you to bring your own Bible and turn it on electronically or look at it on the page. But if you look back at verse 8, it says this. God said, I have come down to deliver them. I have come down to deliver them. That makes it sound like God's going to do it all on his own. But then in verse 10, he says, 
I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people. Now, could you blame Moses for asking God, no, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, God, are you going to do this or am I going to do this? And you know what God would answer? Yes. God would say, Moses, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it in and through you because that's how God delights to do his work. I can't explain it all. I don't know why God chooses to do it sometimes. Don't you think it would have been so much better for God just to send down a fleet of angels to transport the people of Israel from Egypt into Canaan? How much easier that would have been? How much more uh, convenient, less hassle? God didn't intend to do it that way. Now, why doesn't God do it that way? Why does God want human participation and involvement? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's certainly not for efficiency's sake. If God only concerned about doing an efficient work, he wouldn't use us at all. But you know what it's for? It's for relationships' sake. God knows that we draw close to him and we have things revealed to us about who he is and how he works when we work together in cooperation with him that we would have otherwise never known. And so God was drawing Moses into this work. God could do it all by himself, but that's not God's most often plan. Usually he uses people. As 2 Corinthians 6.1 says, we are workers together with him. And that's how God has chosen to do his work. Now, the problem is when God's using us, the problem, us, like Moses would say, verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So God said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. And then when you have brought the people up out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Friends, did you see Moses's question in verse 11? God says, Moses, you're the guy. I'm picking you. I'm choosing you. You're going to be my deliverer. Now, I love how this came to Moses when he was 80 years old and after 40 years in the desert of Midian. If this would have come to Moses when he was only 40 years old, after 40 years of being a prince of Egypt and a successful and a leader man, he would have said, well, God, it's about time you came around to choose me. Didn't you see that I was the one all along? But now, after 40 years of herding sheep out in the desert, Moses says what? Verse 11, who am I? Why me, God? Moses has been genuinely and deeply humbled after 40 years of chasing sheep around the desert. He doesn't have any self-confidence at all. But what God is going to build in him is an appropriate God confidence. Now, I love this. Moses' question was, who am I? Notice God's response in verse 12. I will certainly be with you. I love that response. As if God says this, Moses, who cares about who you are? Let's talk about who I am. I'll be with you. My friends, here's the truth of the matter. Who God is, is a thousand times more important than who you are. And we need to think less about who we are and more about who God is. Because if God is certainly with you, then God is with you and that's all you have to worry about. Who am I was not the right question. The right question was, who is God? And God's identity was more important than Moses' identity. So God's going to reveal himself more to Moses. Look at starting here at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel and I say to them, 
The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moses anticipated that when he went to the children of Israel and said, Hey, everybody, I'm your deliverer. God has called me to rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. Moses is remembering that 40 years ago they rejected him the first time he tried to do that. And so Moses nervously asked God, Well, well, you say you're going to be with me, but who do I say has sent me? How do I explain this? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. I want you to think about that phrase carefully. I am who I am. I wish just for a moment that we could take off our religious colored glasses off of our eyes and see that this is sort of a difficult statement. And I say this and I I say it reverently. I'll explain. You got to hear me out on this one. But at first glance, this statement is nonsensical. I am who I am. That doesn't explain anything. I am who I am. That sounds a little bit more like it comes from Dr. Seuss than it does from the living God. What does that even mean? I am who I am. But then when you think about it again, it actually turns a light on to something that is very important for both Moses and us to understand about the identity of God. It's simply this, that God is incomparable, that God has no equal. The only way you can define God is by God. You can't define him on any other terms. There is no equivalent for God except for God himself. If you place God on one side of your symbol of equation, that is the equal symbol, there is nothing that you can put upon the other side except for himself. God is not the greatest man who ever lived. No. God is not a glorified man. On and on and on. No. Humanity and deity are different. Deity is separate from all of creation. I am who I am was God's way of expressing the vital truth that he is incomparable. And that's why he says in verse 14, tell them, I am has sent me to you. God told Moses that his name was I am because God simply is. There was never a time when he did not exist. There never will be a time when he ceases to exist. He relies upon nothing for life or existence. It doesn't mean that God needs anybody or anything because life is in himself. Now, also inherent in that idea, I am, is the sense that God is what his people need at the exact moment. I know I used grammatically wrong form there. That God, we would say rather, becomes or that he does. But understand, God simply is what we need in the moment. In other words, when we are in darkness, God says to us, I am the light. When we are in bondage, he says, I am freedom. When we need to be fed, God says, I am the bread of life. When we need guidance and need direction, he says, I am the good shepherd. Do you see what that sense is? God simply is 
what his people need at that moment. So in this, God's name is both an announcement, but it's also an introduction. It announces God's presence, but it invites anybody who's interested to know him by experience. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't really believe what I'm telling you about who God is and how he moves in our life this morning, I just have a simple solution for it. Why don't you do what the Bible says you should do? Why don't you taste and see that the Lord is good? Why don't you come and experience him for yourself? Why don't you come and read the Bible and believe the promises of the Bible and say, God, reveal yourself to me through this book and through your spirit. And taste and see that the Lord is good. And God because he is, because he is the I am, he will reveal himself to you. And you will be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, Moses, here's your job to do. I'm going to do send this. I've told you who I am. Now, here's what you're going to do next. Verse 15. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will, they will heed your voice and you shall come and the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him... The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. God essentially gave Moses a two-step plan. Here's the first step. Moses, go to the elders of Israel. They're going to receive you. Now, could you see where this would sort of be shaking to Moses? Lord, last time they rejected me. Don't worry about it. I'm going to do a great work, and I'm going to begin with my people. So go to my people first and speak to them. Once they are persuaded, then you're going to go to the king of Egypt, to Pharaoh himself, and say, let my people go. And we're going to see how that works out in the following chapters, of course. But notice, he says, they will heed your voice. But not necessarily Pharaoh, because look at verse 19. God says, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, that you shall not go empty handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now, I just want you to imagine for a moment how Moses' head must have been aching right about now. God, you're going to send me... And I'm supposed to walk into Pharaoh's court and simply say, uh, let us go. We're going to be gone first for a few days, just a vacation to go in the wilderness to worship our God. But please just let us go. And Moses and, and Pharaoh's supposed to say yes. And God says, no, Moses, I know he's going to say no. But 
I will bend him. I will make him. I will force him hands and and he will end up not only sending you out of Egypt, but they're going to send you out with gifts. They're going to send you out with essentially back pay for all of your years of slavery and servitude in Egypt. They are going to let you go, not because they want to, but because I am going to make them. And that's how the rest of the book of Exodus is going to lay out. God promised to arrange things. But why does God tell Moses this ahead of time? So Moses isn't surprised. So when he stands before Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Moses says, well, that's what God told me to say. So when he says, okay, here comes a plague, Moses says, okay, well, I knew God was going to do this. He told me it all along. Here's the plan, and now Moses will live it out. Now, unfortunately, we have to stop right here. I almost wish we could keep going on into chapter 4, because as we leave it in between chapters 3 and 4, we're still at the burning bush. When we pick it up next week, we're still going to be right there at the burning bush with Moses' encounter with God. But I just want you to think about it and think back over what we've already seen in this chapter. This chapter tells us so much about who God is. And I'll be very straightforward. This is vital for you to know. It's so important for you to know something about who God is in truth as he reveals himself to us in his word. So who is God? Well, we find out from this chapter that God is separate from us, but he's not distant. He connects himself to us. We found out from this chapter that God doesn't need us, that he is self-existent. We found out that God wants us and he draws us to himself. We found out that God knows the future and that he plans and that he prepares for the future. We found out that God draws us and he'll draw us by the picture of the cross itself. We found out that God reveals himself to the humble, to those who will take off their shoes and and hide their face before God. And we found out that who God is, is more important than who you are. All of those things we found out about God. But this is what I want to tell you. God went so much further than all of this to explain himself to you. God is so anxious that you would know something of who he is and how he wants to deal with man that God said, it's not enough for me to display myself in a burning bush and a voice that speaks from that burning bush. No, I'm going to reveal myself in a person in Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man. And Jesus, throughout statements he made in his ministry, deliberately connected himself back to this voice from the burning bush. Because at many dramatic times in his ministry, Jesus said of himself, I am. Drawing on the exact same wording, of course, Jesus said it in Greek and in the ancient Hebrew, but drawing on the exact same wording to say, I am that voice from the burning bush. Now, what's interesting is several times in the Bible where you read those I am statements that Jesus made, We miss it because the translation says, I am he. But if you'll notice carefully in your translations, the he is added and usually indicated by italics. What Jesus really said was simply, I am. I am this one. For example, John chapter 8, verse 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus was referencing himself to be the person from the burning bush. 
Or how about this? John chapter 8, verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Or how about this from John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Matter of fact, his listeners got so angry at him when they said that they knew he was claiming to be God and they tried to stone him. And then finally, John chapter 13, verse 19, it says, Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Friends, do you see this? The voice that speaks from the burning bush is Jesus himself. There's Jesus crowned with thorns, with the fire of God's judgment upon him there on the cross. Yet he is not consumed. As a matter of fact, he's here to give life to you if you believe it and receive it. That's the great message of the I am. You want to know one of the most dramatic places where Jesus used that phrase, I am? It's in John chapter 18, where they came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they said, uh, we're here looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Are you him? And what did Jesus say to that arresting band of soldiers? He just simply said, I am. And do you remember what happened? They all fell down backwards. There was such power, such divine authority in the utterance of that statement, I am, that the soldiers couldn't even stand in the presence of that holy God, Jesus himself. Friends, this is the message. If you want to know God, learn of Jesus. Read of him in his word. Draw close to your good shepherd. Surrender your life to him. Here is God for you to know in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has made himself so knowable and accessible by you. Now you come and receive from him. Father, that's my prayer for these precious people here this morning. Lord, you know them. And so many of them know you. But we ache with the knowledge that we need to know you more deeply. We need to connect with you more intimately. And so God wants you to do this work in our heart. I pray that you would allow us to have our own experience where we humbly come before Jesus. We humbly come before Christ and him crucified. And we come to know who you are, your great love for us, and the great plan that you have for our life in you. Do this, Lord. Do it through our surrendered hearts yielded before you now. In Jesus' name, amen.